1: Heather's writing has been described as effortless, insightful, funny, wise, sharp, and honest. Megan Dom says that readers will find a splendid mix of her familiar and intimate Ask Polly voice and the authority and erudition of a seasoned cultural critic. Heather Haverleski is the author of How to Be a Person in the World and the memoir Disaster Preparedness. She is a columnist for New York Magazine and has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, the New York Times Magazine, and NPR's All Things Considered, among others. She was Salon's TV critic for seven years. She lives here in L.A. with her husband and a loud assortment of dependents, most of them non-deductible. <laughs> Anne Friedman is a journalist and cultural critic. She is a columnist for New York Magazine and the Los Angeles Times and a contributing editor to The Gentlewoman. She co-hosts the podcast Call Your Girlfriend and sends a popular weekly email newsletter. We're delighted to have Heather Haverleski and Ann Friedman with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome.
0: Hi. Thank you guys for coming out. Sorry. Um, This is my tall friend.
2: I'm everybody's tall friend are you do you want to read first or should we talk um, for a while first
0: I don't know what do you think you're the boss you're mm. really the boss uh why don't you read first okay good good idea boss thanks <laughs> so you know how you have some friendships where um, you immediately decide the other person is the boss Wait, you decided I was the boss? Yes. Like
2: Like early uh, on? Very,
0: very, like within two seconds of meeting you. I I
2: thought we had an equitable thing going on. Sometimes I go to your neighborhood, sometimes you come to mine. Well, we're
0: two sane, (laughs) (laughs) sane human beings. Mm. Because I consider it insane to go to the same person's neighborhood over and over again, don't we all? Certainly not. We hate it when that happens. I've basically I've turned all my little pet peeves into an advice column. Mm. <laughs> That's just wrong. Um yeah, I have a thing where it when I meet like a a commanding woman, I'm like, "Okay, you make all the decisions from now on. I like you. Uh, you know what's you <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> you know what's going on and I don't." Okay, so this I was going to read this um <laughs> I'm trying to read a short chapter it's not like too um this is short and sweet yeah it's very and sweet. sweet i want to read something sweet okay this is called true romance as an advice columnist oh by the way now everything i write says as an advice columnist. <laughs> <laughs> i'm an expert see i have some things to say about the letters i get it's nice <laughs> to get research sent to you every week because people are like oh i liked that thing where you started with how you knew things about people more than anyone else. And I'm like, I like that, too, (laughs) since I don't know more things. But I do get letters in the mail. Okay, As an advice columnist, I sometimes get asked how people can keep the romance alive in their marriages. This stumps me a little, because by romance, I know they mean the traditional version, the one that depends on living inside a giant suspenseful question mark. This version of romance focuses on that thrilling moment when you believe you've met someone who might make every single thing in the world feel delicious and amazing and right forever and ever. The romance itself springs forth from big questions. Can this really be what I've been looking for? Will I really feel loved and desired and truly adored at last? Can I finally be seen as the answer to someone else's dream? The heroine with the glimmering eyes and the sultry smile. What's a sultry smile? (laughs) (laughs) That was terrible. This version of romance peaks at the exact moment when you think, holy Christ, I really am going to melt right into this other person who is a relative stranger. It really is physically intoxicating and perfect, and it seems like we feel the exact same way about each other. Traditional romance is heady and exciting precisely because, and not in spite of the fact that, there are other more insidious questions lingering at the edges of the frame. Will I be enough? Will you be enough? Will we be enough together? But once you've been married for a long time, a whole new flavor of romance takes over. It's not the romance of rom-coms, which are predicated on the question of, will this person really love me, which seems impossible, or does this person actually hate me, which seems far more likely. (laughs) And it's not the romance of watching someone's every move like a stalker and wanting to lick his face but trying to restrain yourself. It's not even the romance of, whoa, you bought me flowers, you must really love me, or wow, look at us here, as the sun sets, your lips on mine, we really are doing this love thing. That's dating romance, newlywed romance. You're still pinching yourself. You're still fixated on whether or not it's really happening. You're still kind of, sort of looking for proof. The little moments of validation bring the romance. But after many years of marriage, you don't need any more proof. What you have instead, and what I would argue is the most deeply romantic thing of all, is this palpable, reassuring sense that it's it's okay to be a human being. Because until you feel absolutely sure that you won't eventually be abandoned, it's maybe not 100% clear that any other human mortal can tolerate another human mortal. The smells. (laughs) The sounds the repetitive fixations on the same nonsense over (laughs) and over. Even as you develop a kind of (laughs) resigned glaze of, oh, this again, in, say, marital years one through five, you also feel faintly unnerved by your own terrible mortal humanness. Or you should feel that way. For example, I talk to my dogs a lot. My husband does not comment on how much I do this. I am a true dog lady, but one who also has a husband and kids around. While the dog lady has a long conversation with her dogs, the husband and kids are the ones who stand around cocking their heads quizzically, trying to understand. When I walk in the door after being gone all day, I greet the dogs first. I say things like, Oh, did you miss your mommy? Oh, you missed your mommy a lot. You needed mommy, but mommy wasn't here. Poor puppies. <laughs> then I say things to my kids like, hey, what's up? <laughs> There's a tonal shift. I am less enthusiastic, possibly, possibly because I'm unwell. My kids don't seem to mind. It takes me longer to warm up and cuddle with them, possibly because they're sometimes whining or yelling about something, or asking hard questions about playdates with kids I don't like, and I can't answer their questions until I take my shoes off like Mr. Rogers and lie prone for a few minutes and pour beer into my face. That's when I notice my husband. He missed his mommy too. That's gross. <laughs> Oops. But my husband doesn't yell, what the hell, at me, like he could. He doesn't sneer. He doesn't roll his eyes. I am clearly unwell, but he makes no sounds to this effect. Instead, he hugs me and smiles and says, How is your day, baby? He acts like he doesn't even notice that I should be <laughs> locked away forever and ever in some bad, drafty place that serves only American cheese. <laughs> And now I'm going to tell you the most romantic story of all. I was very sick out of the blue with some, fort of, some form of dysentery. It hit overnight. I got up to go to the bathroom, and I fainted on the way and cracked my ribs on the side of the bathtub. I actually did fracture my ribs. I did not just metaphorically crack. crack, crack crap. I crapped my ribs and I cracked them on the side of the bathtub. My husband discovered me there, passed out, in a scene that, well, imagine what would happen if you let Todd Solons direct an episode of Game of Thrones. (laughs) Think about what that might look like. I'm going to take your delicate sensibilities into account and resist the urge to paint a clearer picture for you. My husband was not happy about this scene, but he handled it without complaint. That is the very definition of romance, not only not being made to feel crappy about things that are clearly out of your control, but being quietly cared for by someone who can shut up and do what needs to be done under duress. That is the definition of sexy, too. People think they want a cowboy because cowboys are rugged and macho and they don't whine, but almost anyone can ride a stallion across a beautiful prairie and then come home and eat a giant home-cooked steak without whining about it. Bravely entering into a wretched dysentery scene, though, will try the most stalwart and unflinching souls among us. Now let's tackle something even darker and more unpleasant, the seeming antithesis of our modern notion of romance. Oh, this makes me sad. Someone is dying. Well, okay, that's sad. Someone is dying in their own bed and someone's spouse is sitting at the bedside holding the dying person's hand and also handling all kinds of unspeakable things that people who aren't drowning in gigantic piles of cash sometimes have to handle all by themselves. To me, that's romance. Romance is surviving and then not surviving anymore without being ashamed of any of it. Oh, that's,
2: I knew it. It's time. It's the time of the tour. You're going to cry. It's
0: like I've strategically chosen things that don't make me cry up until now. Um, Okay. I have too many more pages. Should I really read all this shit? Yeah, Yeah. there's like
2: one more. Okay. Okay. Okay.
0: Because survival is ugly. Survival means sometimes smelling and sounding the wrong way. It's one thing for a person to buy you flowers, to purchase a nice dinner, to prove that they truly, deeply want to have some good, sweet, talky time and some touching time alone with you, and maybe they'd like to do that whole routine forever and ever and ever. That's a heady thing. You might imagine eating out at a nice restaurant and screwing and eating out and screwing and eating out and screwing. Romance, in this view, is like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, except he's (laughs) repeating the same sexually suspenseful moment over and over again. (laughs) True, yeah, she's really helping me out. True romance, you need this for your podcast, a little like laugh track kind of, but it would help. Yeah, just someone (laughs) saying, that's a good point, that's funny. True romance, though, is more like the movie True Romance, has anyone seen that movie? Mm Mm-hmm. Two deluded lazy people face a bewildering sea of filth and blood and gore together, but they make it through it all somehow without losing their minds completely. Because it's one thing to savor the complex flavor profiles of expensive meals together, but it's another thing entirely for a human being to listen to you try to figure out how the day went for your dogs who cannot speak English or any other human language. Was it hard being without mommy? Yes, I think it was. I think you needed your mommy, but she wasn't here. (laughs) I say that every day. And it's another thing entirely when you start to grow an alien in your belly, a process that renders you sharp-tongued and menacing. And then one day, the alien finally comes out all covered in white slime. That is next-level romance right there. And suddenly, all you do is talk to the hairless alien and feed it with your own body, a miracle bragging about how you make food from thin air like a god. And then once the alien goes to bed, you say, Jesus, I'm exhausted, and ouch, my boobs hurt. And then you pass out in a smelly, unattractive heap. And once you have kids, even in a first-world country, you enter a kind of simulation of third-world living. You're feeding one kid with your body while your husband crouches on the floor of a dressing room at the mall, wiping excrement off the other kid's butt. (laughs) You and your husband are slogging through the slop of romance and survival together. And it is romantic, mark my words. You're not alone together very often, and when you are, you sometimes forget how to talk like adults, how to form words about your experience. You feel more like two herd animals, bumping along all blank stares and pensive chewing. There's a lot of pensive chewing. But it's romantic how how you both have no thoughts in your heads whatsoever. The years go by, and it gets less desperate. You get sick less often because you don't wake up 15 times a night. There's less fecal matter to wipe up and less grizzly bear mother rage at the ready. But now you're getting older. So you say things like, god damn it, my ass hurts. <laughs> that is, <laughs> I was waiting for it. That is... <laughs> that is also romantic. It makes you both chuckle. You are both mortal. And you're both surviving together. And you're in this until the very end. You are both screwed. Everything will be exactly this unexciting until one of you dies. And it's the absolute greatest anyway. So So don't let anyone tell you that marriage is comfortable and comforting, but not romantic. Don't let anyone tell you that living and dying together is some sad dance of codependent resignation. Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, codependence. (laughs) Sniff. (laughs) That's romance. Our dumb culture tricks us into believing that romance is the suspense of not knowing whether someone loves you or not yet. The suspense of wanting to have sex but not being able to have it yet. The suspense of wanting all problems and puzzles to be solved by one person without knowing whether or not the person has any particular affinity for puzzles yet. We think romance is a mystery in which you add up clues that will, you will be loved. Romance must be carefully staged and art-directed so everyone looks better than they usually do and seems sexier than they actually are, so the suspense can remain intact. You are not better than you are, though, and neither is your partner. That is romance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is romance. Laughing at how beaten down you sometimes are in your tireless quest to survive is romance. It's sexy to feel less than totally sexy and still feel like you're sexy to one person no matter what. Maybe suspense yields to the suspension of disbelief. Maybe looking for proof yields to finding new ways to muddle through the messes together. But when it's 10 p.m. and you crawl into bed like two old people and tell each other about the weird things that your kids said that day and crack stupid jokes and giggle and then maybe you feel like making out or maybe you just feel like playing a quick game of Candy Crush, all the while saying things like, this game is stupid, it sucks, and your feet are freezing, and my ass hurts. (laughs) That's romantic. Because at some point, let's be honest, Death supplies the suspense. How long can this glorious thing last? Your eyes sometimes seem to ask each other. You, for one, (laughs) I made it for a while. You, for one, really hope this lasts a a whole hell of a lot longer. You savor the repetitive, deliciously mundane rhythms of survival, and you want to keep surviving. You want to you muddle through the messiness of life together as long as you possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> that is the summit, savor it. That is the very definition of romance. <laughs> all right, all right, yeah. Thank you. <laughs>
2: So okay. did you cry when you were writing that? Ugh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The whole time, just like <sighs> through waves of tears.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, you know you're on to something when you're like, yeah, you're, sur- <laughs> you're surviving. <laughs> That's great. Um, I have things that, I, like, I have a few lines in this book and my old book that I could, I mean, and I always wanted to read those lines, you know, because I liked them. I'm in love with myself. That's romance. That's <laughs> romance. The truest romance. (laughs) I don't know. I don't understand it. I actually used to write songs um, with my guitar. I played a little tiny bit of guitar, not that much. And the the biggest problem I had with facing um, trying to perform songs was I cried whenever I got (laughs) to the good part. (laughs) It was so stupid. And, you know, people don't... I, I don't know how they do it, but I think artists have a way of training the... You know, finding some kind of, like, cold distance versus, you know, too much. And I, I've never... I tried to listen really closely. Even Mariah Carey told the contestants on American Idol about this, but I didn't she quite has, She has advice? Y- yes. Oh. Well, they, you know, like, Nicki Minaj has some good advice about it, too. Uh-huh. I love American Idol. Anyway, I never
2: learned. So I, I feel like I read this one on the Internet or in some form. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how... Um, your advice column, I heard you were an advice columnist, um, <laughs> how, how that um, maybe fed this book or how that work led you to want to write this collection?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, um, well, it's interesting because what you get asked a lot when you write books, you know, how did the last book lead to this book and, you know, and it's sort of like um, as someone who... I've just been kind of writing whatever bubbles up <laughs> since, like, 1995, <laughs> insanely <laughs> enough. So um, so in some ways, I would say that um, I've always written... This book is mostly actually cultural writing. It's not a collection of personal essays. It's more a collection of... Um, the, the idea of the book is... Um, I sort of wanted to, as I was kind of pulling together stuff I'd written before and thinking about stuff I wanted to write more of, um, I kind of focused on this idea that, and it's something that I uh, uh, talk about in my advice column all the time, um, I, I zeroed in on this idea that there are all these things that we as Americans ingest, and, and, and specifically, um, I think, that we've ingested over the course of the past, um, I don't know, hundreds of years, the past 50 years more acutely, I probably um, f- focus in on the last 15 years, last 10 years. Um, but just the little tiny micro, not not microaggressions, <laughs> but the strange little artifacts that tell us something about um, who we are and how much we matter, and how much we don't matter, um, and how we ingest and metabolize these messages, um, and we emerge with this idea of what will make us matter. Um, I think that with the advice column, I mean, I'd always written about these themes, I guess, I figured out when I looked at all my writing, I realized that um, I was writing about TV through this lens, I was writing about books through this lens, and then with the with the advice column, I found myself telling people i mean I was really a cultural critic when I began my advice column and i st- I found myself telling people over and over again um, that's not you, it's what you're eating from the messages you receive all the time, and the messages you receive are poisonous, and they don't feed who you your unique self, and the messages act against you um, and make you feel smaller than you really are, um, and so with this book, it kind of, all these things came together, and, uh, and they fit together kind of well in a, a really unexpected way. I wasn't sure that it was all going to come together, um, it, but it didn't feel, I expected it to feel forced, Part of that was when I first started writing it Trump had just been elected and I was just writing about Trump over and over again and I had to stop myself from doing that because Trump fits in with everything to me he's he's you know I mean whatever to everyone to many people to not to everyone. (laughs) <laughs> he embodies the, the absolute worst of American culture, the apotheosis, you know, like the, the natural climax of everything, like, shitty that has ever existed in this culture. And so um, I had to cut out the parts about Trump. I think there are, like, two of them now. Yeah, there's a sprinkling
2: um, of references.
0: Yes. Yeah. But, you know, you can't... It's, you know, two years later, you don't want to be, like, and here's my book about Trump two years later. Um, <laughs> So I took most of it out. I mean yeah. we're still going through it. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Here we are. We're yeah. still here. Yeah, one of my questions that I wrote in the back of this is just all caps, are things getting worse? <laughs> like I don't even know what essay inspired that or oh. if I was just like me like watching the news and uh knowing I was gonna be talking to
0: you. But like that's a serious question. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, things are things feel like they're getting feel they feel worse. They feel like they're getting worse. But I do think that, um, I don't know, I, I do think there was a kind of lathered-up resistance that was happening in the beginning that was kind of beautiful but hard to trust. And now I think there's a more kind of settled-in like understanding of what it means to really um, stand up and be a kind of mundane revolutionary. I mean, I hate to use that word because most of us aren't, A lot of us aren't risking that much. I know I don't feel like I'm risking that much. Um, But I do think that there's kind of a more of a sense. I mean, it's been a wild ride. Like, like, like for example, I think Me Too, for me, and for a lot of women, has been uh, every different thing under the sun. It's like confronting your relationship to how you feel about being a woman in general. There are times when you feel... Um, I know that for me there are times when my internalized misogyny comes out and I say, I don't really like seeing women getting shrill about you know these things. Like It just makes me uncomfortable. And then there are other times when I say, I really like seeing women getting shrill about these things. Um, I feel like I've really ridden the roller coaster with that and I think most people have. And then of course there's the trauma that it kicks up and the depression. But um, But I feel like we're at this moment now. I was looking at that picture. You know the picture um, that kind of got circulated a lot, where it's all the women on the um, Senate floor uh, holding uh, "We Believe You" signs, yes. just from the Kavanaugh right after the Kavanaugh hearings. And there's the one woman going like this, <laughs> and you just want to know what she's saying. I mean, they might be just like yelling a chant, but the- but it's kind of this beautiful, kind of chaotic scene where you see like. I don't know. I, I think that there's something about this photograph, um, and maybe it's just my our relationship to photographs of, from the Vietnam protests and pho- you know through history. There's something like that you can attach and connect to in a photograph. That sometimes when you're there, you're like, I'm tired of yelling. We're here. <laughs> We're clear. You know, it's just like I don't want to yell this anymore. Um, but it just makes me cry every time I look at it. I think that we're at a mo- we're actually at a moment now, thanks to the trauma of the Kavanaugh hearings, where um, we I believe that something is hardening into a sustained and real and trustworthy kind of resistance, and I think they should fucking watch their backs because we are on it now. I mean, I do do feel that way. And I also think that there's a turn between um, the trauma of just not wanting to know about Me Too anymore and feeling tired by that and kind of turning the corner and saying, this is reality, we're all in it, a lot of us has been through this, and we're going to manifest and we're going to live in reality now. We're not going to hold it at arm's length anymore, kind of, if that makes sense. So
2: how do you, I mean, I know, I feel like I understand the this, if what if this were enough in the context of like a lot of the cultural things you write about in, in a lot of the personal essays. I feel like what you just read, it was like the most perfect example of like what this title means in practice in the book. But I feel like I run into problems when I get to the political where I'm like, no, it's not enough ever, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's like where. Um, and so I, I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, about the title and the, the this and where it does and doesn't apply.
0: Well, I mean, okay, so yeah, it's 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 a hard thing to. Um, it's easy to be paranoid about, and especially, I mean, it's kind of pretty. <laughs> it's like you know, middle-aged ladies say, "Time to accept and be safe, folks." <laughs> um, it's sort of like, you know, I, I, I feel like there's something a little bit like almost that seems pro status quo about that title. Um, but that's not uh, that's not where it comes from. I mean, my my thing. OK, so the the book really the central themes of the book are we live in a society that tells us that teaches us to and it's it's. There are, there are a lot of political themes woven into it, obviously, but um, but the a lot of the material is about how we're kind of coaxed into believing that we should continue to improve to infinity and beyond, that there is some glorious, successful landing place that if we spend enough money and energy and if we tirelessly try to achieve... Um, perfection on every different level look you know looks uh material wealth um uh, virtual seeming you know the 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 sort of like it, because it's not just being you can't just be beautiful in person you have to also be you know appear to be um worldly and to, to be doing amazing things and to To appear to have, you know, to have tons of followers and to be, um, uh, everyone is expected to speak like this but on talk shows and to have sound bites at the ready um, and to be smooth and polished um, no matter what kind of career you have. But it's also a matter of... um, it's the thing that I thought was um, that kind of came up as I was writing the book was we also expect ourselves to be clean on the inside. We expect our, um, we expect our minds to be calm and clear. We expect to, to actually feel on the inside the way Gwyneth Paltrow talks about <laughs> feeling, <laughs> which... Um, yeah, I mean, I have a problem with that. And so, because we're jittery, fucked up, insane animals. You know, we're animals. And so, for, if you ever, like, observe an animal, um, animals always look like they're at war with themselves. <laughs> and they're twitchy motherfuckers. And they can't decide what to do because they want to do 15,000 things at once. They're like, I want to eat, and I, I want to fuck, and I want to go over there, and I'm gonna, you know, I am guess I'm going to peck the ground right here for a while because I'm not sure which thing to do. That's called displacement behavior. I took animal behavior in college. But, um, but yeah, we're all neurotic Tortured souls because we're animals, but we're supposed to be—we're um, supposed to be calm and serene and moisturized uh, inside our bodies as well as on the outside. And so um, that feeling of failure that you get just by being an animal, just by recognizing your human self, um, to recognize your humanity feels like a moral failure at this particular point in history. That's the main argument of my book. Um, so, to me, the release from that is uh, the, the, the ability to, I mean, the, the, the exit from that state of, like, my agitation is a failure, um, my noticing that this room isn't perfectly art-directed is my failure, you know, my noticing that someone might misunderstand what I just meant when I said that one thing Their misperception of who I am is my failure, and I have to eat that too. So everything around me reflects failure on me. And so I'm this, not just a failure, but like a deep moral failure for just being, okay? Which is the antithesis of, existence is the antithesis of enjoyment and satisfaction and sensuality and to me the escape from that is being able to locate yourself in a place and notice how much noise you have on board as an animal and notice that spaces aren't art directed and notice that people do age and die and that's actually beautiful and okay and to notice that you know the noise in your head and the noise in your surroundings are these really gorgeous, wonderful, beautiful things that make up a work of art that is being alive. Um, and so that's where I was trying to head with this. And it's, it's a strange kind of floaty thing because it's something that I do now several times a day. It's like I, I, when I'm feeling a little agitated, I kind of remind myself like, yes, you know, My throat is dry. It's a little too cold in here. It's not too cold in here, but just as an example, I use the opposite example of how I'm feeling. I'm always too hot now, Um, but I I notice things that are going wrong, and then I notice how right it is that there are things going wrong, kind of. Which is a hard thing to. These are the kind of attunements that like. You know, to be attuned to what's wrong and to welcome it at the same time to embrace it and to feel it and to say this is reality, it's really fucking hard to do that in our culture. But it's a beautiful thing and it releases you from the terror of wanting to be some better shiny image or some weird cleansed, sterile, internally sterile human that we will never, ever, any of us, become.
2: I I feel like there's a few essays in this book, please correct me if you disagree, where you are kind of trying to convince yourself of that. Like the like a lot of the essay is you kind of giving yourself a version of that pep
0: talk. Um, and I'm just, I'm wondering... Yeah, I mean, it never ends, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you, you can't... Um, you. You grow up and you have these messages in your head that you're fucking up. And, you know, it takes, like, it's taken me a long time just to slough off enough of it that I'm, like, I'm actually happy now. You know, like, most days are very happy and I don't fault myself for, you know, for just being a person. Um, but it's a, it's a constantly unfolding, you know, drama. I don't think it's that. It's just there's no arrival point is the whole point, right? So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, I am talking to myself and coaching myself (laughs) constantly.
2: Well, I I wonder
0: about. I I was. I was
2: wondering how much of, um, how much of it is kind of you using yourself as a stand-in for like the all of us who are reading this, the we, you know, and how much of it was like, oh, I'm really like I'm writing my way into believing this a little deeply myself, a little more deeply. Like I feel like sometimes I write, I need to write my way to a thing that I, you know, maybe know intellectually, but.
0: Yeah, yeah. Don't
2: believe in a real way. I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, I did I did try very hard with this book to um to to kind of have it lead somewhere, to not just have it be um I've read a lot of books that are like, oh Jesus, we're fucked, and here are all the ways, and that's the end, you know. <laughs> um I, I, I knew that I wanted to take the risk of sort of pointing in, in a kind of direction. Um but I do think that I was thinking also of the people who send me letters not to fall back on my as an advice columnist and <laughs> 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 it's not all about me. Haha, I got I have an out. Um but yeah, I mean, I read I get uh you know, 30 to 50 letters a week and they are very similar to each other. Um a lot of them, although each is a unique flower that I honor <laughs> all all its own. Um and I you know, it's, it's like there are these voices in my head now almost based on these letters I get and I feel like a little bit haunted by them and I feel like I, you know, it's important to me to kind of honor the discord that I hear through those letters, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I I just like in my column though, I do use myself, if I'm trying to find a connecting point, I do go to myself and say like, where you know, how do I know this? How do I understand the emotions of this? And then I... Dig deep and luckily I have all kinds of problems. <laughs> I can find some connecting point. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Woo. <laughs> um,
0: I I
2: love some of your thoughts about uh the ways this is performed online and the ways you're doing a little bit of like, uh what is a what is a sort of generational reaction to the internet and like like doing some stereotype busting that like, okay, this generation is uncomfortable with this aspect of performing your life on social media, but this generation loves it. But this generation is like, you know, just starting to wade in. And, and I, I feel like your conclusion is kind of like it's horrible and messed up for everyone. And there is like not enough acknowledgement of that basic fact. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I appreciated that connection.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, um, we had, there There was particularly about, I'm going to say, about a year ago, there was just a lot of talk of, like, digital natives, they're fine with it. I, you know, it was almost like, I would say, like, just when most people started to have iPhones in their pockets. There was sort of this, M- but millennials, they're just seamless. They can just, you know, and it's like, yeah, they know how to use the apps really well, <laughs> but are they, they're un- completely untroubled by, you know, this new digital culture. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't quite buy that that was the case. And I also, because I read letters from millennials all day long, because that's probably the largest group of people who write to me, um, although it is skewing a little younger now, I guess millennial cutoff is 22. I pay attention to these things because my stepson is 22, so he's like, I'm right on the cusp. Um, he considers himself, I think, a millennial. Yeah, but I think he's he those parkland kids and he or he's could be one of them. Mm-hmm. He's exactly like them. Um, but I think that um yeah, I I read these letters from millennials all the time and I just think this is Gen X. I mean, it sounds exactly the same to me. I understand in a work setting we sometimes present differently and that's what you'll hear from people because that's people's you know, my peers' access to millennials is often like the millennials work with them or for them, which is its own strange relationship. Um, wh- having people work for you is uncomfortable, or for a lot of people, and working for people is obviously shitty, um, <laughs> across the board. No, um, but yeah, I, to me, it's sort of—I um, don't know. It's—it's it's, it's hard because when you're writing for a living, you know, when you're in media, you're kind of constantly coaxed to. Say important things about generational difference. But media people are more obsessed with generational difference than almost anyone alive because it just makes a good article.
2: Because the media invented generational difference. Yes, yes,
0: yeah. yeah. And also, you know, it, yeah, I feel like if you talk too, on the no, in too much of an on the nose way about general, generational difference, you end up sounding kind of like Lindsey Graham, you know? I'm <laughs> just like, what's wrong with these people? They're crazy. Like, and then you're lo- and you're looking at this man, and you're like, you're so smooth and <laughs> shiny. <laughs> what's wrong with you? What's your story? Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite essay in this collection?
2: A personal fave?
0: Um, God, I can't even remember what's in this book.
2: <laughs> I just kept... if There's not an easy answer. You can just say no. I
1: mean.
0: Um. Yes, I have the answer. Um. You know, the the one I just read, I like because. Um, I don't know. I like things. It's that one is a little bit out of place, actually, because they're they're very cu- you know they're mostly about the culture. I really like the one about foodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about how annoying foodies are to me. <laughs> and then there's one about Fifty Shades of Grey that I think is pretty great. I don't know. I like myself a lot. <laughs> They're all good. I like the one about BuzzFeed. My favorite but one of my favorites is like I have this one that's about BuzzFeed and John Updike and that's that's one of my favorites. It's really about Okay, I'm going to read the begin the first line of it. No, that's not the first line, but my favorite line of the whole thing. Sometimes I forget that I'm going to die someday and then BuzzFeed reminds me that death is inescapable. <laughs>
2: You know, there's an app called Croak that will remind you five times a day that you're gonna die.
0: Oh, that makes perfect Much sense. Much more direct. Who than doesn't Buzz want feed. that? Yeah, I know. It just says you're gonna die. It's basically like reminder: you're gonna die. Oh my god. Yeah.
2: That's it's a thing. So helpful. It's, it's very popular. I have to thank you for for the uh, entourage insight in this book. I feel like we come down on different (laughs) sides. I am like a secret lover of Entourage because of the exact reasons you hate it, which it's like this flat escapist fantasy where like, you know, they're unchallenged, unevolving, like nothing. I mean, for me, it's like kind of the opposite of like what I think a lot of people find to be relaxing culture, which I'm like constantly like, I'm like, this is just so easily bad. I can just turn off. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there's anything that was, like, going to make it into this book. And you were like, oh, actually, I don't feel any kind of complicated way about it. I had to cut it. Oh. Um, no, no. I don't write about things I don't feel complicated about. <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. Like, was there something that someone was like, what about this thing happening in the culture? And you're like, no, it's great. Moving on.
0: Well, I mean, when I was a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was a TV critic, I wrote about um, uh, Paradise Hotel which was like the precursor to Bachelor in Paradise, but it was even better. I just watched (laughs) Bachelor in Paradise this summer with my children, because I'm evil. Um, And um, Bachelor in Paradise kind of touches the hem of Paradise Hotel, I have Mm. to admit. It's like almost kind of has a similar stupidity to it. But Paradise (laughs) Hotel was like one of the first um, reality TV shows where they just didn't even know what they're doing. They just were like, we gotta get hot people and get them really drunk. And that we're just, they got, well, how can we force them to hook up while the cameras roll? Um, and they'd kind of show them hooking up. Like, they don't really do that in Bachelor in Paradise. I guess they feel like they couldn't really get away with that. Um, but that show, I wrote um, a piece about how we would look back on this time in reality TV. It was like two thousand two. No, it must have been two thousand three or two thousand four, because that's when I started being a TV critic. And I said we'd look back and feel really nostalgic that it was so good and so bad at the same time, and because nothing would ever be quite the same. And it's true. I was right. (laughs) So I like that. I feel like you could have just reprinted an "I was right" section. (laughs) yeah
2: um okay, I'm gonna ask my right last question, which will be a quickie, and then uh you all can ask some questions, so start thinking about them so you're not shy. um How does it feel to walk on
0: the ground among mere mortals? Oh God, it's so you know taxing for me because um but it's gonna be interesting, right I guess sometimes it's mostly tedious um uh, <laughs> you know people don't understand how brilliant I am and that's disturbing and they also don't see how beautiful I am which I don't understand that either fucking pisses me off almost constantly um yeah it's like they're always in my way it's horseshit great
2: (laughs) exactly what I was looking for
0: does anyone have a question so welcoming to your questions yeah exactly
2: right
1: self-reflexive morality when we're talking to each other. And that's leading us to the idea that we don't have social parity. We have this victimization because we're not equal
0: in the social structure. And so I think on the backs of black women who started all right fucking on to that did, you have, did everybody hear that she says Good we're not summer. going back <laughs> on the backs of black women which I also yeah right on to that too i mean I, i'm yeah i mean I'm guilty of um, just having watched uh, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, run and thinking this is all about misogyny, and and then when Trump won, the first thing I thought was, I mean, it's not like I noticed no racist (laughs) undertones to what Trump was doing, but I woke up when Trump won and thought, wow, the world really fucking hates women that much, and then I was like, oh, yeah they fucking hate black people that much, too, and that's why we're here, you know? And I was embarrassed, because, you know, it's it's embarrassing to wake up and say, like, oh, it's all about women, you know, and to not recognize the other dimensions of it, you know? Um, so, yeah, but are we at this point where we can't go back? I mean, I hate to... S- it's weird, because I think that, also specifically in the media, it's it's natural to not want to sound naive, you know? I mean, because people are paranoid about that because it's like an editor will keep you from sounding naive often or um one of the one of the wonderful things about becoming uh, an advice columnist is people kind of I mean I was a cultural critic and now I I do both things um but people sort of are like oh yeah your thing is to kind of get idealistic, so now you're allowed to do that because that's part of your, what you're known for. Um, until you're known for that, people will just sh- chop that shit out of your, out of your writing. Um, and political writing, you have, in some ways you have more leeway, in some ways you have less. So it's sort of like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think there's a value to actually making the noise that says, we're not fucking going back, this is where we are. Like, because you define reality with your language. Um, and I think I think while I fear saying something as naive as, this time women and black people and people of color will rise up, it, even though it, this has happened a million times before, I also kind of feel like it won't happen unless we say out loud, we've fucking decided that it, we're not going to fucking, you know, tolerate another backlash of the same magnitude as the ones we saw in 19 in the 1970s. We saw them in the 1990s. I mean, I felt acutely that f- the world was incredibly anti-feminist at the end of the 90s. Um, so yeah, right on. I, I hope that you're right. Yeah, I agree. You have the numbers. And I think that this is your question. <laughs> you're you're good at this. I
2: feel like, uh, yeah, I don't I mean, how mon- how m- how much time do we have? i I will say that um, I think it's always good to start asking questions about um, like, what am I doing that you could film with a camera? Like this is a question I ask myself, not just like, oh, it's like a photo of me clicking a thing, but like, what am I doing that is like a conversation you could record or like, you know, to whether it's to someone who's elected to represent me or whether it's um, a private conversation. I think that when I think about what I wish, like for example, men were doing um, more of, uh, I wish I could be like, oh yes, there they are, all talking to each other about this issue of great importance and how they're gonna carpool to the physical place where they're showing up. And I think that that's the same expectation I um try to put on myself when it comes to any issue that I don't have, like, a personal, um, like, identity stake in. So, yeah, that's, like, the short version of that. But I think we could also be here for another 8 to 10 to 12 to 24 hours discussing that question.
0: I do actually kind of think, though, a lot when I'm on Twitter now, I think about how many women I follow and how many women I I, follow me. And I I, I have – I've had these, like, bursts of, like – is it is it smart for the movement for me to be a dick to men about the fact that I don't fucking hear their voices that much? You know what I mean? Like, I've kind of moved into this space where I'm like, okay, maybe I'll stand up and I don't, you know, I don't care. <laughs> Let them hate me. Um, I do, you know, I, I and I, by saying that, I don't mean like, you know, you know, white men this and white men that, which I... Tweet that kind of shit all the time, but I just wonder if if just like pressuring specific men I know who aren't making noise and just saying like, "Where's your voice?" You know, this revolution is happening. I would assume that you're with us. I'd like to hear your voice, honestly. I
2: definitely have asked men in my life. Send me the screenshots. Are you texting other men about this, like in private? Would love to know about it. (laughs) Send me the receipts, and you know, to the point of like. You know, some kind of personal accountability and dialogue, like yeah. yeah, I don't know. I um,
0: I feel like that's a I th- I do think that is a thing that is a very right now kind of feeling, like where people feel I'm pretty comfortable being a dick about this right now. It to to friends, kind of. You know what I mean? Like I think I need to hear from you. I want to know that you understand what's at stake for the women in your life yeah, and for you.
2: Just as I fear, I feel that's a fair question for like a friend to ask me about like, hey, like, hello, are you like, you know, in conversation like with your, you know, with your mother yeah. uh, about like her politics? Are you like bringing her along? Yeah, like, totally. yeah, yeah, like I know the people who are mutuals like, you know, in our friend group, we're all okay. But anyway, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I, I think that there is a, a component of it about leveraging personal relationships that is real. Yeah. Anyway.
0: Yeah, leverage your personal relationships. <laughs> Sell them up the river if you have to. I mean,
2: kind of. Sorry. <laughs> Very derailing. Let's talk about the book. Yes. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, um, I think that the, okay, so there is kind of like a, they do change based on what I've addressed recently. So I'll tend to get like a flood of questions about marriage after I talk about a bad marriage, for example, or, you know, respond to a letter about a marriage that's failing. Um, I get a lot of, uh, questions about writing right after I address someone who's trying to be a writer or, um, creative questions, um. But I think that the I mean, you know, in the beginning, when I, I started writing the column in 2012, um, and I answered I was really in answering questions about um, non-committal boyfriends, yeah. <laughs> a specialty of mine. Um, yeah, it is. It is. So um, So I, I did answer a lot of dating questions for the first two years. And now I would say, because it's almost like those things have lived online for so long that there are new people that just wander in based on those. Um, and they're like, well, I've got a dating question. So I get tons of, then he didn't, then on Thursday, you know, like that, you know, just like your girlfriends yeah. who are like, yeah, he, you know, he, I don't, you know, I don't know if he cares, does he? You know, it's like, if you don't know, he doesn't. The end. Um, I asked him to send me a screenshot of him in dialogue with his male friends
2: about what he's doing, and he refused. Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: does that do mean do? it's a, is Polly. that a deal breaker? Polly,
2: help me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, he won't stand up for revolution. What's his problem? I mean, kinda. Yeah.
2: <laughs> also, kinda. Okay. I do. I do get
0: things like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say there. It's kind of everything under the sun. I get a lot of um, career. Is it time to leave my job? Because I I do tend to be a little bit. I mean, leaving jobs has really served me well, and I don't know anyone who, who has left a job that they hated and regretted it. So I do tend to say, hey, if you think you should leave, um, I. But I. But I am also of the mindset that um, you should. Make, keep your lifestyle inexpensive so that you have freedom to make moves and leave when you need to leave. Um, and that that includes when you're married. Like, if your marriage is on the rocks, keep that lifestyle inexpensive. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of ever-evolving. I mean, I, I think that... I, I don't know. Did I say something about how all the letters sound the same? That's sad. No, I mean, you just said that there are similarities between like. on the themes that I I mean yeah. I've been doing it for, you know, six years so and I get fifty a week. So that's a lot. I mean it's it's uh I, I do think that I find I don't know. I it's sort of like I try to forget the last week's letters and just move on and approach each week with like what you know, wonderful letter will I discover this week and treat as if I've never answered a letter before. You know, that's really what I I try to do. And when people say, remember that letter you answered, you know, it was about two years ago, and I'm just like, I don't, I have no idea because I don't want to know in some ways because I kind of just want to feel like I just live in a bubble and something appears before me and I address it and it goes away and the next thing, you know, it feels more immediate. Um, Does that, did that answer your question? (laughs) Okay. Other Questions? I know there's another question. It's just bubbling up.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Back to the title. I kind of, I don't know, is it enough? I want to know what you think because a question comes
0: from my Pima showdown, Limping's Fall Apart, and there's this one of the um, entries about hopelessness, and it's like hopelessness. Should accept I and mean, it's good that you should accept. And you're talking about being, being attuned to things that are wrong and embracing that without having read this book, this new book. Um, is it enough? Like, is that what to? like the, the line between ambition and striving and striving for to do be better politically, personally, than love? And it being enough and embracing what's Well, I mean, okay, so language is interesting <laughs> enough can mean um just whatever is right i mean it's sort of like <clears throat> i think the sense it, in some sense what i meant with what if this were enough just meant like what if this were a kind of resting place instead of just a path somewhere else you know i mean what if what if um what if this moment what if you treated this moment like it like it was all you had you would embrace what is and you would naturally embrace you know the bad things and the good things within that experience and you'd also just tune into every little thing about it you know Um, and so enough is sort of like is there enough here can I get more and there is always more in the actual moment I think that's the that's the sense that I that I have used to kind of Get out of my mentality of lacking and longing, and there must be some better point to strive for. Um, And also, um, just out of the out of my my myself, sort of like, am I enough? Do I do I bring the world enough? Am I constantly failing, or am I actually just great, exactly the right the way I am? Enough is a way of saying, uh, you know, w- we're full. You know, we <clears throat> if we want to be full, we can feel full. It's a choice. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. you. All right. Yeah, last one. Um, I'm sure that I get each of those things wrong at different times. It's it's kind of like a um, an instinct thing where I I start to say, uh, you know, well, am I, if I were in your situation, you know, or given what you've told me, I think I would start here, and then I start to you know think about what they've told me. And I really like taking the letter itself and just treating it as um, its own found document, kind of. like This is all the information I have. I can't get any more information. For a while, my, I, I shifted editors about a year ago, and she would put things in the margin that said, do you think she, you know, is this her third? Bo- How many boyfriends has she had before this? or <laughs> Or like, do you think she feels confused about, you know, and she would ask questions where it's almost like she was saying, should we go back and find out more, you know, and I had to say like, we like, this is how I do it. I really just act like I found this letter and there's no way to get more because actually, if you go, I have gone through stages where I would say. I better go back and ask some more questions and then it just becomes this well no he's not that bad you know, and, you know it's just like a conversation with a friend where you just land up you, you basically land nowhere you know you're just like okay I know I'm confused I don't know and actually although I would say you know I'm sure there are times when I help someone I hear this I also kind of think the ultimate um, value of the column is not helping this one person in the exact right way. The ultimate value is uh, you're analyzing a document together essentially because everyone's reading the document that I received. Um, And then you're addressing, you're interpreting. It's an act of interpretation, right? But it's also this strange act of connection or imagined connection um, where you access shared, you know, feelings and you say I know where you are you know I mean sometimes it's just like there's something hard happening and you just want to say I feel for you and I you know but you I never I really try hard not to ever write that without feeling it because it's such a nice thing to hear but you want to know that it's real you know (laughs) like you have to and I just feel like I think people have a sense of whether it's real or not you know, and they know when you're just saying, yeah, I hear you, I've been there, and, and, and they're just, you know, when you're just like, okay, move on, though, uh, versus I, f- I feel you, I know, you know, I feel for you, I know, yeah, I know, I know where you are, you know, I know where you are, and sometimes that's, sometimes that's enough to just say, I know where you are, and other people have been there, and we're here, and you have to reach out and know. You know, that. I mean, I think that I didn't even know how to do that before I started writing this column. And now I understand the power of that much more than I used to, um, just in and of itself. It doesn't have to lead anywhere. It's just like, oh, that feeling. Yeah, I know that. I know that feeling. Um, but, yeah, I think it's... There are times when I, want to, I end up going internal and I don't, you know, I didn't plan on it. I think I'm just going to say, yeah, kick your mother-in-law out of the house. And then I'm like... But that's really strange how you wanted to control her reaction to you. Don't you? Hold on a second. What's going on with you? You know. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a mixed bag. It's not, it's not um, I don't think that, I think it, a lot of it probably depends on my mood on any given day too. You know, it's just a subjective mess. It's just like a crazy thing. But I, I think it's an interesting, crazy ride. And it, I feel like it works um, most of the time. Maybe, Um, but it's not a science. It's not that, yeah, who knows. (laughs) Perfect ending. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. Truly perfect. But it's enough. It's enough to know nothing. (laughs) What if that were enough? Knowing nothing. What if it were? What if you weren't an expert (laughs) and you still had a microphone in front of your face? (laughs) Wouldn't that be weird? (laughs) Thanks, Heather. Thank you guys so much for coming.